Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems and we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. This week we have author and MQ ambassador Claire Easton. Earlier this year Claire released a book called How I Learned to Live with Panic which explores anxiety and panic disorder whilst providing helpful knowledge on how to manage panic attacks. In this episode we talk about the difficulties with getting a diagnosis, learning how to understand your condition and how to support somebody with panic disorder. Welcome to the latest MQ Open Mind podcast. And Craig and I are delighted today to welcome Claire Easton. And Claire is going to talk to us about hopefully some of the work she's been doing as an MQ ambassador, but also her journey, your own journey, your journey in mental health. And obviously, um, obviously best-selling author, two books. So um, we're looking forward to hearing about that journey and, and the book writing process as well as maybe what your sort of insights are in, in terms of what you would like to see done in terms of mental health research, in particular with regard to social anxiety and maybe panic disorder. So maybe what's well, so a welcome, first of all, on behalf of Craig and I. So welcome, Claire. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having us. No problem. Oh, welcome in. And so where are you doing? Are you, are you in Manchester at the minute? Manchester, yeah. Manchester is home. Bank yes, holiday. <laughs> So we've got obviously Manchester, Glasgow, and London. So we've got most well that part of the 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 British Isles covered certainly. Um, so Sweet. which is good. So no, Claire. So just maybe to sort of start our conversation, um, tell us a bit about your interest in or experiences of mental health, maybe, and um, and how you got involved in MQ. Maybe start with that, maybe. Sure. Um how I became interested in mental health in general is because I went mad. I went completely bonkers. Uh, I always knew that I was a bit of a sensitive kid, but it wasn't until I was 24 and had the, my first sort of breakdown that I became interested in it almost because I had to. Yeah, I was sort of really shocked about how the lack of not just, you know, treatment, but, support and education I mm -hmm. sort of it, it really horrified me so on top of being very very poorly um I was having what I now know are panic attacks I didn't know that at the time I didn't know what they were back in god it would have been 2011 there just wasn't as much information and the information that was available was sort of littered with medical jargon that I didn't understand mm -hmm. or really bleak stories you know from uh sort of like reddit or something about people saying i've not left the house this has ruined my life and people don't go back and update those kind of things so you kind of read them and think this is going to be me yeah you for life type thing yeah yeah so i got involved in it because i was like right i'm gonna start researching it myself and trying to decode it and thought if i at least understand it it makes it less scary. Like I always use the analogy of if you didn't tell a girl about, you know, her menstrual cycle and one day she pulls down her knickers and there's blood, you are going to think you're dying. It's absolutely terrifying. So it's kind of it's similar for me with, with mental health. And mm -hmm. that's what I've kind of made a bit of a quest of mine for the last decade. Yeah. No, no. And so, so just so I'm clear. So was that what did you say in your mid 20s that that obviously your dad's my god what's happening here going on and um and we can make come back to your blog in a minute and what led to that because it you have a great blog but so in your teenage years any any mental health challenges at all or because i think i saw some youtube video of you from a couple of years ago as you smile for those who are listening to this claire smiling going <laughs> but in the youtube video i think you talked about some about some um, your experiences as, at school, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Now I look back and you want to cringe almost because it's textbook social anxiety, like textbook. 
um and adhd i think in a lot of ways but it just wasn't a thing especially where i'm from from bolton so you know it just doesn't it just wasn't a thing mental awareness so everyone just thought i was incredibly shy right and awkward and a bit weird and when you've got friends you've got lots of friends people think well there's nothing wrong with her she's fine she's just a bit shy whereas on the inside I sort of knew that I this is agony for me like interacting with people on a daily basis is such hard work and did you did you try to talk to others about that how you're feeling or how did that go how'd that work yeah I mean I tried to I spoke to my mum about it a lot who was incredibly sympathetic but you you get put down to puberty as well Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well I so you think you'll grow out of it yeah and i suppose purity is such a challenging time for for many and um so you can sort of see as as a father of two teenagers um i could certainly see uh, i understand that entirely in terms of the real when there's that when um the, the huge change in in emotional development as well as psychological development as well as physical development it really is a challenging time so so at school then you were feeling all having obviously like I can't remember what you said in terms of feeling awful inside but real torment was there any support at school or no no and that's not how old am I now I'm 35 so I mean things have changed so much you know mm -hmm. a lot of my friends are teachers and it just makes me cry and like I'm so glad to know that there's that kind of support and recognition now but no not for me not at all it was right well if you can't stand up in front of the class and read out this then there's something wrong with you. I know, I mean, it's incredible when you think back to that. And hopefully, I mean, I think that is less likely to happen, but probably still does happen in some schools, is not recognising, um, yeah, social anxiety or whatever the, the challenges might be of speaking in public or or, or whatever the, the anxiety is, is linked to. So then fast forward to your school, so that was your teenage years. And then, so then between the, the teenage years and your, was the mid-20s, Mm -hmm. Um, so that had you had you seen your GP or was there had you had support or um treatment or anything? Nothing really. I mean, at university, I found this amazing thing called alcohol. So, <laughs> magic. It was, <laughs> and it was sort of I don't know. By the time I went to college and university, it almost did go away a little bit because those environments were just more comfortable for me. Like nobody's going to put me on the spot anymore. No one's going to force me to do group work or I could just, I, you know, especially at university, you go to your lectures, you do your work. Nobody cares almost. You're in charge of your own life. So. And was that easier then? Much easier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of it was just changing the environment. Like it just wasn't, just didn't work for me school. And the same way I've made this link in therapy, not work itself, but a work environment, like an office like that. It's very similar to school in terms of, you know, the, the regimented, you have to be here at this time, you leave at this time. We all, you have to go into meetings and you have to speak. You have to be involved in this. And this like, is quite similar. So I always wonder like, oh, is that a connection there really? Yeah, no, yeah I think you're right. I think that's a, yeah, a, clear, con a clear connection um, to make. So you find alcohol at university, navigated that and so did you then go to the gp and then say i'm really i'm really really struggling now or how did that i only went to a gp because i went because i had a nervous breakdown really because i knew something wasn't right for about a year before it happened i now know i was having like minor panic attacks it was really high level anxiety i sort of almost developed rituals sort of i couldn't get in a lift even though we were on like the 10th floor because I might meet somebody I know and I have to talk, so I'll go up 10 flights of stairs, which is great for exercise, really not good on a hot day. Yeah. Um, I started going to different toilets in the office so I didn't have to pass certain desks. Um, yeah. It was borderlining on like exhausting behaviour. And I actually, I went for an interview and that's what triggered the nervous breakdown because it just all, I had this huge panic attack. I thought, I'm, go I'm actually going to die. This is it. So I legged it out of this meeting room legged it I don't know if you know London all the way down the strand yeah I do and that's a long was, road what was so weird was um obviously I've got this accent but when I was having that moment of I'm gonna die because it's social anxiety and you're still sort of like well I don't want to make a scene you know how best can I get out of it so I stood up and said in a really posh voice like I'm so terribly sorry but I do believe I have the neurovirus 
and I must leave at once. And then left. I was like, like as everyone was like, my boss messaged me like, what the fuck was that? Like, it was hilarious because like, that's what the brain does to, even though you think you're dying, social anxiety is like, yeah, I know, but we don't really want to make a fool of ourselves. So. Sometimes you're trying to sort of have some excuse well, or explanation or. So it was good though. I mean, it's one of the best things and worst things that have happened to me because I couldn't get out of that. You know, there was mm. no way I could just skulk back to the office on Monday and pretend everything was fine. It was sort of, we need to see a doctor. And I was so sure they were just going to say there's nothing wrong with you. But oh, okay. I was diagnosed in under two minutes, like textbook social anxiety and panic disorder. Mm-hmm. And so hold on, so the, but and with and your working supportive in that context, that weekend must have been a difficult weekend for you though. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I would have gone to A&E if I could have, but it wouldn't send an ambulance. And I was like, I can't get the tube there. We didn't, you know, I didn't have a car. Yeah. And it was just panic attack after panic attack. And I don't think I've ever been that frightened. Like, I really felt like I was falling down a hole. And I just did the only thing I could think of and got blind drunk, mm-hmm. which was horrific. Yeah. But I didn't yeah. know what else to do. And then, so then the, the Monday, then you literally, the next Monday, then you went to see your GP. Mm-hmm. And the GP obviously diagnosed you, as you say, textbook, textbook social anxiety, panic disorder. Mm-hmm. And then did you get support or help then as a result of the diagnosis? It was different. This, this She said at the time, it was, it's a case of there are a variety of different medications, SSRI classic medication mm-hmm. she can try the first one i tried metazepin i can't remember i think it was metazepin but it it made me suicidal it was really bad and i've never felt like that before so that was absolutely terrifying and it happened very quickly so we came off that one and now i take sertraline which is the second one we tried but it was that kind of attitude of um it might work it might make it worse mm-hmm. that i didn't expect because if I had a chest infection, they wouldn't be like, try this. It might kill you, but it might work. It's a bit bizarre to me, but, and then it was like, come back in six weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put you on the waiting list for some therapy because, you know, there's a waiting list. So, yeah. No, but I think that's all, that is a challenge, I think, with all treatments, both psychological and, uh, or pharmacological drug based ones, is that, yeah, you, I think sometimes we think that, oh, you take a drug, it'll, it's yeah, it can only have beneficial effects, or you do psychological treatment, it can only have beneficial effects. And of course, we have to be so conscious of side effects or counter indications that we talk about, obviously, in in a more medical in a more medical sort of paradigm. But and and recognizing that um, there's no one fit for all, and it's no. maybe trying out different treatments or responses. But it, but but it, but but in 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 the sense out the second tryout, so to speak, second drugs obviously helped you and continues to help you. Yeah, it did. It, it sort of, it took a while, but I suddenly noticed things were just a tiny bit easier, maybe sort of 20% easier. And then, so that, so then, so obviously then that's on the road to recovery or improvement or, or getting better then. So when did you, so what year was that then? And it, that was, did you say 10 years ago then roughly, was it? Yeah, 2011, 2012, I think it was, yeah. Okay. And so then your first, so, so my, what your first book was 2016, mm-hmm. so, and right. so, but you'd started the blog before that, is that right? Is that right? The, and the blog is, it's the same title as your first book, We're All Mad Here. Or is that right? I, I, we're All Mad Here. I got, I got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's Alice in Wonderland quote, both the same. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. As, have I, I'm trying to think of, how, have I actually read Alice in Wonderland? I think I might be ashamed to say. I've read some of it, I think. So I don't recognize that quote is my point. So that's my my ignorance. What inspired you then to um, start the blog? Because I mean, it's a really well-received blog, obviously. Award-winning, did I read somewhere? It was, yeah. It, yeah, it really was. It was amazing. So what so then what so what so what why did you go about doing the blog then? Was it linked to you the the lack of understanding out there about social anxiety and panic disorder or, or what well so it started selfishly for me to be honest because I had a lot of time you know when I went to see my GP she immediately signed me off work for two months you need to have a rest so like, okay um do you know me <laughs> <laughs> and you just told me I've got this you know anxious condition like I can't I can try but if my mind's left to its own devices I kind of spiraled and I just felt so hopeless so sort of just lying around and 
not understanding what was happening to me. So I figured maybe I could take control of it a little bit by treating like treating it a bit like a research project. Yeah. So maybe I can start compiling my own information and then translating it into language that I understand. Mm-hmm. So it's something for me to do. And then after a bit, I was like, I think I'll put this into a blog because if I'm feeling like this, there must be others and I'll put it up here. And then it just might make somebody else's journey a little bit faster and a little bit easier. So, and then it, it, it's something for me to do, you know, it's a creative yeah, outlet. Yeah. Was you not nervous to, to, to share so much about yourself online? Now I would be if I was starting. But, you know, there wasn't the hell, like there was social media, like Twitter and, but like Instagram mm-hmm. wasn't that big. Um, plus I, I was like, I'm no one. So who's going to read it? It was a bit of that because I didn't tell anyone. And it was anonymous for a while, so I'm just thought, oh, nice, fine, no one's going to read it. And then you fast forward a couple of years, and you're like, mum will say, is that what's really what's going on? And I'm like, oops. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but did you start to get feedback from from, pe- from various people there soon? Yeah, really, yeah. really quickly, actually. That's what amazed me. Like, there was almost a kind of a thirst for it. Mm-hmm. And then what, and so what happened then in terms of, so the, the, you were doing, how often were you writing the blog then? I'd say one post a week I'd publish. All right, okay. So we, we started this by asking how you got involved in MQ. We'll get back to that. We'll go get there eventually. But, and so what that led you then, because one thing is writing a blog. The next thing is obviously writing a book. Um, so what's the process by which you, the book came about, the, your first book? The first book was so different to the second because a publisher got in touch with me because the blog was getting a lot of media attention. Um, which was amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. And it was after a piece in The Guardian, I think a publisher got in contact with me and said, would you be interested in turning this into a book? We think there's about 50% of a book here. And if you can sort of expand on that. So I was delighted, like, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, indeed. And and so that, I mean, cause that's, not, that's not an email you expect to receive. No, and I'd worked in publishing. So I know how hard it is. You know, I used to, I used to work at a huge publisher. So yeah. I, I know how hard it is. So when you get an email like that, you're like, really? Oh my God, my ego. <laughs> <laughs> that would certainly help. That would certainly help anyone's ego. So then, so but so then you agreed to that. And then yeah. how long? So then, how long did it take to get from that email to getting the book out? Then I'd say about a year. Oh, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And then, obviously, there's some stat I've read somewhere that the first run of the book, of the publication run, whatever, sold out in five days or something? Yeah. Now, that was ridiculous. I mean, I could sort of, again, puff up my own ego here and be like, I just, they just got in touch with me because I'm so amazing. What happened <laughs> was um, my dog walker was best mates with one of the bookers on this morning. Ah, okay. right. There you go. So it was, uh, I got in, first of all, I did like the Mirror and a few of the other newspapers. And then because of that, she's like, you can come on this morning. I've got you a spot. And I was so, the book had only just come out. So I got the email on like a Sunday and it was the next day. Mm. And I just remember being like, okay, this will be fine. <laughs> oh my God. That was the most traumatic. I can't even remember that. I've seen that interview now and I don't remember anything I said at the time. So I'm glad it went well. And that's what did it. You know, obviously television is the best form of sort of yeah. advertising and getting Absolutely. it out to people. So, yeah. Every that's time right. I say I'll tell this story, my agent's like, stop telling people that. <laughs> it's because you're brilliant. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Craig, you're coming in there. No, I was going to say, and even live TV, I guess if, if no one knows, but uh, this morning is a live television show. So if you mm-hmm. do that live, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Someone with social anxiety on live television. I was like, <laughs> irony no but i mean that, that's amazing but it also highlights i think there's so many cases of serendipity now which is very serendipitous that it just so happened and that that whatever you had that connection with the dog dog walker but that doesn't take anything away from the book being great because there's lots of great books out there that people don't know about and it's not and that's so i think that's a brilliant that was a so i think that's a good story to tell um, I can I'll understand why why your agent was less keen on you on <laughs> for telling that story. So, okay, so that did so that did obviously incredibly well, and I assume you got a lot of correspondence because um, it's sort of 
it really works as a self-help book, helping others feel that they're not alone and that their experiences are other people experience those things. So you must have loads of correspondence from people, various people on social media and elsewhere. Yeah, after this morning, it was over, it was overwhelming almost. I think at one point I had sort of like 4,000 emails in my inbox. Wow. And then you get on social media too. Wow. Yeah, yeah. But not just from people who themselves had the condition. It was from mothers, you know, worrying about their mm-hmm. children or partners. or And mm-hmm. it just really made me realize the sort of lack of information that was out there still. And that was 2016. Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, your book hopefully will help fill in some of the gaps for, for people. And, and as you say, written in a way which is accessible to to a wide, a wide readership or wide audience. So then... We'll come back to your more recent book, your second book, um, in a second. So then, when, so then, when did you get involved in MQ, and how or how did you get involved in MQ? Well, it was a complete fluke. I um, met someone. She emailed me quite a few times, whose name I can't remember now, which is terrible. Uh, she was, was an ambassador for MQ, and she we just were having a coffee because she was telling me she loved the book and this kind of thing, and she mentioned it. Mm-hmm. And I'd been after looking for a new charity for a long time because the ones that were available, whilst fantastic, I just thought their main priority is raising awareness, which is great. But so I'm like, okay, we're aware now. What next? We know yeah. there's no money in treatment. You know, there's no money in research. There's, there's surely it can't just be about awareness and saying telling stories, which is a fantastic part. But like, somebody needs to do something. This can't be as good as it gets. And that's that's how I became involved in MQ because when I looked into the, the, the charity, I was that was it. It was like crack. I'm like, this is what I've been looking for. No, that's great. No, and and we really are grateful for um your advocacy and being a, an MQ ambassador. I think it's really, really important and reaching because I think what we try and do in MQ is with ambassadors from, with a whole range of experiences and a whole range of backgrounds. Because exactly what we're, we're trying to do is, yeah, get the message out there. Not just as you nicely put there, Claire. It's not just about awareness, awareness raising about the challenges and the scale of distress out there, but rather what we need to build the evidence base for what treatments are most effective, and recognizing that, that as you were discussing earlier or at the start of the podcast about even in the context of medication, different medications will work or not work. The same with all forms of, of treatments for. Um, any mental health problems so that's no, that's great so then um okay so that the sticking with the sort of mq theme then and we'll just try and think about research priorities so so if you think about your experiences and we'll come back to i'm keen to talk about your more recent book in a second but thinking about your involvement in mq and obviously we're trying to build the evidence so if, you're, if somebody said to you oh, you're an mq ambassador and they say well what research do you think we should be investing in? So what would you think, or what would you say we should be prioritizing as a charity, as a research charity? It is, it's it's a tricky one because there are so many worthy uh, things to research. I learned so much when I went to the MQ conference. I wasn't supposed to be there. I was just kind of tacked along because I'm like, I love knowledge. So, and it's the first time I got a real insight into schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. I have a friend, a really close friend of mine, whose sister has it. And she used to tell me stories and we would laugh because that was her way of sort of dealing with her sister behaving in a certain way. But that's when it really struck me that, whoa, we're nowhere near where I, we should be. You know, if mm-hmm. you compare it to cancer, or the only sort of, I'm, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but I'm like the only current care is sort of, sedation and sort of physically keeping them from the outside world like there's not a lot of help so I thought that and it's not just to distressing to the individual suffering but it affects families mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and it can be dangerous and you get misrepresented in the media um I think that one's a real that's that's a really important one yeah because I, I think it also highlights another issue is that even if we think about awareness raising never mind treatment We've got there's been huge progress, certainly in awareness raising and these anti-stigma campaigns and destigmatization of things like anxiety and depression. But 
maybe schizophrenia or psychosis and bipolar disorder. I mean, there is yet yeah, some progress made, but, but I think you're right in terms of treatments. These are real areas we need more evidence. Now, thankfully, even in the last four or five years, I think there has been more focus in, in mm. trying to develop novel treatments or new ways of reaching and supporting um, people with schizophrenia or, or psychosis. So I think that's a, that's a great one, to, a great one to raise. And, um, but I still think we've, that, yeah, we still have a long way to go in terms of, as Craig and I often say in this podcast now, for parity of esteem, there still is no equality. And I, and the big concern now moving forward with the cost of living crisis is those who are already vulnerable. Because we know, for example, during the pandemic, people who had pre-existing mental health problems were much more adversely affected by the pandemic than those without. And my concern is moving forward, that's going to get even worse, especially with those with severe and enduring mental health problems like schizophrenia or psychosis. So no great one, great one indeed. But then bringing it back to you, to you, Claire, in terms of your own experiences, and um, and then we'll go on to the, the the second book. Is so, how do you manage your sort of mental health now? In terms of what what works for you when you're starting to feel overwhelmed or or distressed? A big one for me. I know you suppose. I know there's a lot of you know things like meditation and mindfulness and lots of things like that are great, fantastic, and I do deploy them, but. I, I'm really founded in knowledge and education. Mm -hmm. If I understand what's happening to me, then I can sort of look back and think, ah, it's that again. It's happened before. This might feel new and scary and violent, but it's not. It, it's That's what's happened. So think about what helped before. Mm -hmm. And that might be you're going to have to take some time out. Obviously, things like breathing exercises. For me, it's a lot of talk. Tell someone. Let's get it out of your head because it's been squatting in there for a long time. So mm -hmm. it might be writing, it might be talking to someone, but it's like get this out because otherwise yeah. it'll it'll make camp. Or it'll what make camp? I like that. That's a good expression. So is that a North of England expression? Could be. Make camp. <laughs> I don't. just my sheltered my sheltered life in Ireland and Glasgow, perhaps. But I like it. Um. Yeah. So no, I think they're really good points in terms of. Also, just getting it, getting it out there, but also what might might work in one moment in time may not be as effective in different moments. So it's worth trying um, lots lots of different things. And then, so then thinking then, so I'm trying. So in my head, I've got your your life trajectory in my mind's eye. So you then you did the first book. Um, we're all mad here. Was 2016, and then your 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 second book which was published on the same day as my book. Oh, so it, was. it was. We are, we are obviously publication day birthdays. Oh, or right. twins, sorry, twins. Publication day twins. And so tell us how, you, how that came about, this, the second book. <laughs> well, it was this, the second book is I had an agent this time and I actually had to pitch a book that I was going to do. And... They're going to pay you to do it rather than you get paid afterwards, which is what I was used to. So there was a lot of pressure. And it's not that I didn't take it seriously. I just think I was very naive about the strain it was going to put on my my mental health. Yeah, yeah. No, I was just going to say, so, so obviously I didn't say the title of the book, just for the listener. So it, it's Fuck I Think I'm Dying, yeah. um, How I Learned to Live with Panic. Is, and it was published in 2021 available all good bookshops and online so sorry claire just thought i forgot to say that so i wanted to get that out there so okay so you find you were more aware obviously different pressures on you yeah you got your advance and um and then the impact on your well-being yeah so it's funny i had another i had another mental breakdown well at first when i first started it i was saying this to my agent like i don't know what i'm gonna do next because i'm feeling all right like clearly magic only happens when i end up like losing it so yeah. <laughs> but it it was the straw that broke the camel's back like that had been brewing for a long time again i sort of mastered anxiety but mm -hmm. panic panic attacks i don't know if you've ever had one i haven't i haven't no I, i've had I, close to i've had what close to but i've never had a, pan a full 
a panic attack and that have been paralyzed or psychologically or anything. Craig, were you going to say you have had or not? I've had so many, especially yeah. when you were talking about like growing up about like um, social anxiety and a bit of the ADHD that described my childhood so much. So yeah, I've had I've had a few panic attacks. I think the last one I. Um, the the last really big one, I honestly felt like I couldn't tell. Is it a heart attack? Am I dying? What's happening yeah. here? Yeah, I felt like my heart was gonna explode, and yeah. then like nothing happens. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. And it's that, and then nothing happens, and you feel you feel like you've been through a near near death experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, but nothing happened, and you can't quantify it. You can't. There's no evidence, so you kind of have to go on as normal. But you're looking over your shoulder, like I don't. What was that? Yeah. So, so when you so when you say nothing happened, do you mean that after the feelings had whatever dissipated, that you're sitting going, how did that happen? What was that? Or that you were waiting, like Craig, you said, or no, Claire, you think you said one of you said about an example of like a heart attacks, but tightness mm. of chest and so on. Is that what you mean, or which of those do you mean? Is it that, or is it both those? I thought I see. I think I was having. I thought I was having a stroke. Mm -hmm. So I was waiting for that, almost like my brain to explode and I'd open my eyes and I'd be somewhere else, kind of. Right. And Craig? I, for me, um, like I had had, I've suffered from like, you know, anxiety for like years now. So I've had a, quite a few panic attacks. But that last one, the one I'm thinking of in particular, I honestly thought, yeah, at, this is it. Because I, I was trying to breathe and there was, it felt like nothing was going in. And it was just like I was constantly just getting... Um, more and more out of breath and I just felt myself like sinking to the ground and then it it ends and then you just get up and it's like okay we just move on and um yeah it's it's it, not that I'm expecting I want something else to happen afterwards like I get a prize at the end of it but it's just like oh okay that was something it just doesn't feel that you, you can be suitable comforted because nothing ha suitably comforted because nothing happened where you're like that was absolutely horrendous, but I don't really know how to convey that to anybody yeah. else. They just think like, because they don't know. Yeah, yeah. No. Yeah. So I, I figured out, I knew I was going to write about panic attacks. I didn't then know that I was going to have a nervous breakdown, which had been coming. I lost, oh, I'd been overworking. It was so bad. I went to London to an event and I lost sight in one of my eyes. Oh my God, that's frightening. And I'd, I'd had a migraine for a week. I was vomiting. What's really bizarre now is like, why didn't you do anything? I was like, I don't know. I just. Yeah. And so, then... hold on. so when you when you had the migraine and the whatever the um, blindness in the eye, you literally didn't do anything. You didn't no. seek help. So it just sorted itself I... out in your mind. I was so much in shock, and I knew that I'm like, you've got one of my first deadlines was. A week away and i just kept thinking you'll be all right you'll be all right you've been overworking it but after this one event i had a couple days off i'm like you'll be fine you get into bed you'll chill it'll be all right mm -hmm. and my brain it just had enough so it triggered a nervous breakdown where it was panic it was the worst i've ever had in my life it was the most violent i've ever had like my nose was bleeding I was vomiting and then i got you know when you get cramp in your leg like yeah. in your i got it in my jaw Oh my god! So we had to go to A and E. We actually had to ring an ambulance this time because I was blacking out. And anyway, we went, and it was the worst experience of my life. Unfortunately, they I was laid face down on the floor at one point because my my jaw wouldn't stop moving, and I was in so much pain. I was like, I'm just going to lie on the floor. And my husband had his feet on my shoulders to try and keep me still. And about four hours later, they it was still happening. Um, the doctor who saw me told me it was my own fault, and if I calmed down, it would go away. I go that so... <laughs> really, really unhelpful. Obviously, understatement of the century. That's terrible. Yeah. So I, I mean, I was proud of myself to this day for being very sort of assertive but calm with her. I said, "Do you know I'm thinking about going and getting hit by a car? Mm. Because then you'll have to help me. Or my only other option is obviously to go home and get absolutely blind drunk, which is what I did." And that's not something I want to do. I would ever recommend, but I was desperate, yeah. absolutely desperate. I thought this is going to kill me. And then after that, again, I had to have some time off work. Everyone was really understanding. Mm -hmm. And if anything, it kind of gave me the fire of like, right, people don't understand panic. And 
if you know people don't understand it but i hate the idea of it happening to someone and they don't only understand it but they think they're going to die they think there's no treatment for it i'm like no 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 they are absolutely manageable if you just know what you're dealing with oh my god that's horror story stuff really is and um and so so you took time off and and things got better then Uh. yeah that was the biggest wake-up call of my life actually i think that was 2019 Mm -hmm. it was sort of you can't keep doing this it was it wasn't just about that book it'd been like my whole life this is how i work you know i kind of just work myself into the ground i'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie when i like something Mm -hmm. ignoring basic self-care which i used to roll my eyes out like yeah i know what self-care is i eat i like basically you don't because you're you're killing yourself yeah, but so but so now that after that experience, right? So that was a wake up call. So are you engaging in better self care now? Yes. <laughs> right, so you mentioned there the things you do to help you feel less overwhelmed, but or what, what you do when you are feeling overwhelmed. So but so you do that. You're much more regulate and regulate in terms of you're saying about your uh, adrenaline ju- junkie. Obviously, work yourself into the ground. So are you stopping? So have those things been regulated, or hopefully? Yeah. My, I wish I could show you in my office, actually. I have stuff on my pin board that explains what happens. So I rem- remind myself almost, like, yeah. this is what happened last time. And this mm-hmm. is what happens when you do that. You, know, you don't sleep. So it's almost like evidence-based that I can look at. Great. I have yeah. set working hours now. I'm very strict with my set working hours. Wow. Okay, um, that's brilliant. Yeah. And, that's, and you've seen benefits of that then, obviously. 100%. Mm. Even with things like... Um, you know the saying burning the candle at both ends mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah because even good adrenaline excite you know it can it takes from you like you, you can't go out because I'm, I'm introverted as well so i've got to be really careful about how much time i spend mm-hmm. doing social stuff because it knackers me out yeah absolutely don't no, you say once it with the adrenaline the, the rushes of the adrenaline whatever goes up has to come down and i think that's it and you do be, you do feel drained um yeah, no, I, well, so fast forward then, so 2019, that was 2019, the book came out in May 2021, mm-hmm. so so then, so you managed clearly then to meet the deadlines, get the book completed, and and so you must be delighted, because again, it's been really well received. Yeah, yeah, really well received, It's and this one fell, it was harder, it, it... I don't know if you know, feel like this as an author. Like, you sort of, you write the book, you think, oh, fantastic, it's finished. And then the PR comes. Yeah. And then the really hard work starts. <laughs> well, also the bit of going, oh, my God, I might think it's really good, but maybe others don't agree. Yeah. <laughs> That's the other scary bit. But obviously that wasn't the case for yours because, um, yeah, well, I mean, everything I've read about it, I've seen it's all been great and lots of really lovely messages on social media that you get and looking at the reviews on Amazon and elsewhere. It's, it's great. So then, so that's, you've done two. So I'm just trying to timeline. So that was 2016, 2021. So is there another one coming in 2026? <laughs> Ask me again. Next time I'm in hospital, I'll message you like it's happened again, Rory. Oh, no, hopefully well, not. Hopefully I've got not. new content now. <laughs> <laughs> No, but so, but is that? But, but do you have a? Do you think because you were saying earlier that, or when you had the conversation with their agent, going, well, actually, what will what else have I to say really or communicate? So, yeah. are you sort of feeling at that stage that you've said all you need to say on? I know you're mentioning obviously things might change in the future, but this moment in time, do you think you've got all you want to get out in terms of public messaging around panic disorder and how you live with it? Yeah, I think. Probably shouldn't be saying this, but um, for now, I'm kind of done with mental health. It might come back, but as much as I love writing about it, and it does take a lot, and it is yeah. painful. Mm-hmm. You know, it's painful to because I might think I'm fine writing about it, rereading stuff, but my subconscious mm-hmm. might think that I'm reliving it, or it's. And then you sort of I. In 2021, in particular, I found that that's all I'm talk. That's all I talk about. Yeah, that's all yeah, I talk exactly. about. So. Exhausting, exhausting. But um, 
maybe it's a wee bit unfair, but if if for somebody who hasn't read your latest book, what are, what would you say? And this sounds like a PR thing, but what are the what would be the three key messages you think you've you've tried to make or convey from the book? First of all, it's completely fine to be terrified, and how the feeling is so validated. It is scary. It's not because you're weak or like mentally not mentally strong or anything like that. Like, no, 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 this has happened to you in the same way that, you know, you might get a headache or a stomach bug. Like, something's just, there's been a bit of cross-wires, a bit of miscommunication in the brain. So you're absolutely valid and feeling frightened and uncertain. Mm -hmm. Like, please accept that. Second of all, it's totally manageable. Like, one of the things panic manages to do is a great trick. It's It convinces you that this is it right? and there is no help. And the only yeah. way you can deal with it is to put yourself in a situation where you might never have panic attacks again. You know, that's how people become agoraphobic to a certain extent or they mm -hmm. can't do certain activities anymore because of panic. It does. It takes so much territory. Yeah. So we won't let that happen. There are absolutely things you can do. That's a really optimistic message, obviously, or messages. I think so. Because I was so the other way when I was going through it, I was like, well, this is my life over. And I felt like that for a long time. So now I understand everything there is to know about it. I'm like, oh, no, no, this is totally manageable. But the third one would be just be patient with yourself. Like, it's not an overnight fix. And don't give up if after, you know, a couple of weeks, you're like, well, this isn't working. You're like, mm -hmm. it's a bit like a resetting a bone. You have to, the brain has to unlearn and relearn new things. So keep with it. Yeah, there are three brilliant messages. Um, no, and no, I think the, the patient one, I think, is such an important one. Because I think in the fast pace of life that we live in now, we 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 want results immediately and instant gratification. Yeah, yeah and an instant results. So you just and that's just not the case. Um, yeah. So I think it's really, 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 really important. Um, just moving it on, two or three more questions, Claire. If that's okay. And then if there's anything then you would like us that we didn't get a chance to talk about, um, uh, just let just let us know. So. Again, what do you think are the most common misunderstandings around social anxiety and, and mental disorder? The most common one for social anxiety is that the person is shy. Yeah. It's just shyness and, you know, with a bit of tough love for making yourself do things, you can overcome it and you think, well, that's wrong. What are you going to do, especially if it's a kid, you know, all you're going to do is traumatise them and make them shy away from this for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Um, always socially anxious people that were rude are kind of well she's not talking to me does she think she is yeah I'm like trust me i'm trying i just can't meet you in the eye at the moment just give me five minutes like it still happens now i'll be like i'll arrive at a party or an event or something and i'll be like just give me five minutes and i'll i'll ground and you'll be all right at the moment I'm just like and i know no one's looking at me mm -hmm. it's not how it works it's infuriating when people try and comfort people with social anxiety by saying no one's looking at you it's fine and you think, we know that <laughs> it's, it's our own heads that's you know going into overdrive so i'm like if i get just some time to calm down a bit then i can do it i can yeah. but with panic the most common misconception to panic can be i've been smacked before as an adult like calm down like you're being dramatic, you're being ridiculous, stop it. Because it frightens people. I think mm -hmm. if you cry hysterically and there's nothing seemingly wrong, people react by behaving like that. Like, stop it immediately. Um, another one is, what happens to me in a &E? It's your own fault. Yeah. You need to calm down. I'm like, genius. Are you going to tell someone who's broke the leg to be like, you know what, you just need to not have a broken leg? Yeah, just tell them to walk it off. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's. I mean, it is. I mean, it is awful. It's we still like it's. We can sort of half of a joke about it, but it's not funny at all about. But it isn't taken as seriously as physical health problems, and given that we know obviously the outcomes, for sadly for too many are. I mean, I'm very lucky. I'm very lucky yeah, that yeah, yeah. I have a supportive partner and family. I always that's something I never ever take for granted because, but that doctor. When she said that to me, she didn't know that. Yeah. You know, I could have been going home alone and decided I couldn't cope anymore. Or I might have done what I said and, you know, walked into ongoing traffic. It's a kind yeah. of... Yeah. Thankfully, you didn't. Thankfully, you didn't, um, uh, obviously. 
No, okay. So then the last question, then we could sort of two with two like questions we like to sort of end with was a wee bit different. But on that, um what we see, I mean, we had the question about your aspirations about sort of key research priorities. Um, but what about what about I mean, you're thinking about the image of mental health research moving forward. What would you think would be your, our biggest goal or aspiration? Mental health research going forward. Yeah. So in terms of what, either messages for the public or for scientists or for the policymakers, whoever it may be. Okay. Can we have lots of money, please? <laughs> I like that answer. I like that answer. Yeah. In a simplistic, you know, it's, I mean, you'll know this more than me, Rory, but suicide is still the biggest killer of men, isn't it? Is it under the age of 50 or is it 40? Yeah, yeah. Both those ages, I think, depends which statistics you look at. But the key thing is, yeah, it's leading or second leading cause of death. It's awful. Uh, so not cancer, you know, not yeah. diabetes, not even smoking. It's people being so poorly that they decide taking their own lives is their only option. Yeah. Which is unacceptable. And we, it should be imperative that there is as much funding given to research as possible so we can sort of not necessarily get to the root of this problem, but find ways that, you know, you can at least make life a bit easier, understand or earlier signs. Like there's it's such a complex issue, but when you hear a statistic like that, I'm like, I don't really know what more you know, the powers that be need to hear before they act when you hear something like that, so. Yeah, well, no, absolutely not. Thanks for raising that, because it's such, I mean, obviously such an important issue, such an important issue. The needless loss of countless numbers of lives, countless numbers of lives, so no, thanks for that, Claire. Okay, so Claire, two two last questions, just slightly different from the ones that preceded. So the first one then is, like you said this earlier in the podcast that you're, 35 now so reflecting on your 35 years what advice would you give your 16 year old self uh you're doing it all wrong no (laughs) (laughs) 16 year old me now i mean i know they say in life what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and i do believe that to an extent but i think young claire definitely went through the mill a bit from things that didn't need to happen i think i would tell her to start writing it down how she's feeling Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this is valid. I know that, unfortunately, people don't necessarily understand, so you're not getting what you need, but let's start writing it down because that's one way of getting it out of your head. Um, also, your GCSEs are not as important as you think they are. Don't worry. I, I lost sleep over that. I'm like, if you don't get like all these grades, because that's what the teachers told me, you know, I'll end up in prison or something. Like, that's anxiety talking. Like, don't, let's just get enough to get into you. Like, don't. You don't always have to be the best at something. You don't have to be perfect. Like your academic career is not going to define you. It's going to make you ill. Yeah, yeah. No, I guess that's really helpful. Just get that in context. The exams are, yes, they can be important, but we all navigate the, the, our journeys differently. And, and and there's always a second chance. Because I remember the other one is, oh my God, if you fail them, that's your life over yeah. more or less. Whereas actually lots of people... Maybe because it's what we all mature at different stages in our lives, and the and that's the same for academic maturity as well. And so, yeah, or you decide that's not for you. But the point is, yeah, get it in context that there's more important things in life is great. Okay, so then the last question, and then we'll we will um be let you go on your way. Um, Claire is so thinking about anybody living or dead, famous or not famous who you would most like to have a dinner or a coffee with and why? Mine might be a bit out there. I don't know if you'll have heard of this person, but she's called Frances Farmer. And she was a 1950s actress who was, for once for a better word, put in an asylum. Oh. Uh, Where is she from? In the UK? No, it's, uh, hang on a minute. I think San Francisco, America. Okay, I'm yeah. quickly, I'm quickly Googling. I'm quickly, oh, sorry, go on. <laughs> she, Cooker Bay, Nirvana, you wrote a song about her. Francis Farmer will have her revenge on San Francisco, I think it is. But. Oh, yeah, just find her, yeah. So, and so why, why, why would you so like to have coffee with her? Well, I read her, I found her biography, autobiography in like a charity shop about 10 years ago when I was reading it I was like this has got to be fiction 
like her life because she now understand what I understand like there are obvious signs of some kind of mental disorder and she dealt with it with alcoholism but Mm -hmm. she eventually got incarcerated because she decided she didn't want to be famous anymore she didn't want to be an actress and (laughs) they decided to not want to be famous you must be insane so they locked her up for I think it was about past five years wow yeah just looking I'm just looking at that here yeah Uh, on obviously Wikipedia has come to my rescue um, mm-hmm. Not a really famous story. So that just in terms of the context, so she was born and so this is, yeah, so she was born in 1913, I think, and um, 1913 and died 1970 at mm-hmm. age 56. An actress, singer and television host. And just my quick, it's just looking at, obviously there's some allegations of um, some controversies around her mm-hmm. treatment, her psychiatric treatment, which no, almost, I'll look at that and in detail. No, it's fascinating. Really good I just love to ask her how she did it. You know, how do you, because she did write a lot about from now I recognize as mindfulness mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. distraction techniques. You know, when she had really extensive like hydrotherapy, they used to put her in ice baths so bad that she almost bit off her lip because it was that cold. Oh, right. so it's like, how do you stay you? How do you stay sane? So she'd be mm-hmm. like, things like, recite nursery rhymes, reciting poems, trying to think everywhere she'd been. And it's like, how do you keep your, your mind on your side? And I just think her story is incredible. Yeah. It's quite being unbelievable. So. Well, no, that's something old. Thanks. That's a great suggestion. And one I'll, I mean, it looks f- fascinating story. And um, yeah, so no, thank you very much. Back to that. that you're you. right. That might have been out there, but I think a great suggestion, a really great, great suggestion. So that's us um, really, and Craig and I really enjoyed our conversation with you, Claire, and and it's been really interesting just hearing about sort of the the journey, the writing journey as well, as well as you now and the blog and the advocacy work you do, obviously on behalf of MQ and, and others. So a huge, huge thanks from Craig and I, and hopefully our listeners will have found it really, really interesting. Also, again, both of Claire's books are available to buy and out there now, and I would highly recommend them. So thanks a million, Claire, and have a great day. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.